welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. It is your girl, Ash, taking it over for now. So we've had this one in the vault for a long time. We recorded this back in probably early 2020, um, maybe January or February, so... Um, or maybe even December of 2019. So it's been a minute, but we had Nina Sadowski on and she is a gem. She is an innovative badass. I aspire to be more like her, her focus and determination and hunger to get shit done is uh, just it really ignites a fire within me. Um, and I'm so, so fortunate to get to work with her, uh, teaching her Pilates. And I get to like go on this little journey with her of when she pivots and innovates and when she's writing her novels and she'll, you know, share that they just sent the the cover over. Like she's got three covers to choose from and she's like figuring out which cover to choose and just really, really special. I love being along for that ride and just a really phenomenal woman. 100%. So get out your pen and paper and start your innovation list. How are you going to innovate day to day? Enjoy. All right. We are back here with Clarity, Ashley, and Juliana. Mm-hmm. What's up? And with our special guest, Nina Sadowski, author, writer, filmmaker, producer, educator. The hyphens go on. Oh, we love a multi-hyphenate. We I'm tired listening to you about it. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, so we are here for I for Innovation because she is an innovator recreating or re-innovating over and over and over again in all the different places of all the creative aspects all the creativity we're in her office and she has her own collages that she has made from her travels and journeys and memories and it is quite astounding she's got so much creativity so we're gonna learn a little bit about it today Nina hello hello thanks for, being thanks here. for having me yeah so we picked you for eye for innovation um, and what does that mean to you well, I was flattered that you asked me to be I for innovation because I flatter myself that I am an innovator. I think I am. Um, I've reinvented myself, as you mentioned several times, and I've also, in the course of that, launched a number of startups, including NYU Los Angeles, which is a program I'm running now. It's about to start its second semester. So um, I, I thought it was really cool because one of my personal philosophies is that if you're not flexible and you're not innovating, you're just going to be stuck. The world is changing fast. So if you're not innovating to be flexible to keep up with that world, you will get stuck. And stuck is the one thing I never want to be. Wow. Fair. Yeah. Wow. That Right off the bat. Don't get stuck, y'all. <laughs> Dang. Okay. I love it. Um, and then... What was your question about innovation? Do you think it's overused? Yeah, well, so part of my background is in marketing and social media, but within that I worked in the nonprofit space for a while. And that word, we would use it in our social media, like, you know, copy and our posts. And there was so much talk about it, innovating, being the next nonprofit to do X, Y, Z. And it kind of got to a point where is it losing its meaning? Like we want to keep doing what the word means, but like, yuck, is it just so overused? And I, I'm just curious to hear. Well, I think a lot of words sometimes get like that. You know, right? like I think there are a lot of words which become the buzzwords. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that there is a utility to that in that we should be thinking in an innovative way. And so if people are talking about how do I innovate? How do I innovate? That's good. It you know propels it forward. Um, did we get maybe get a little word fatigue out of it? Yes, but I think as long as the word fatigue doesn't inter- interfere with the actual innovation that's getting done, that's good. Right. And, and maybe, you know, instead of promoting something as innovative, maybe you have to figure out a different way to promote it to cut through that sense that you're just doing. That I guess what you're saying is, is if everything is innovative, is nothing innovative. Right. right? It's like that line from of, Little Miss Sunshine. If everyone's true. special, nobody's special, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think 
you kind of just have to focus on what the meaning of the word is and how you act it with the action of the yes. word opposed to just using the word over and over yeah, and over. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, And I think that if, if you're afraid that it's going to lose its impact in an outward perspective, then you, have, you self, still have to innovate. You just have to describe it in a different way mm-hmm. so that people don't say, oh, well, same, same old same. Right, because it's, it's, you know, kind of back to the marketing leg. If you turn someone off right away in your copy or your post or something, they might not even get to the part where you show, oh, wow, this really is innovative. Right, if you're, exactly. you know, using an overused word or a hashtag that's controversial or, you know, it's right. just funny how one word or phrase can move Yeah, but the is there anything sometimes. that's not controversial now? I don't know. True, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's a very... Another good. word that could be overused controversial is like, if yeah. everything is, is anything? Well, yes, that's true. And <laughs> that may be the decline of our society right there. <laughs> I mean, like some Yay, death in one. <laughs> We're going rogue. Wow. We're out. <laughs> true, true. Uh, what industry were you in first? Well, in my long and weird career, um, like my first jobs were in dance. I was a dance teacher and a dance therapist. Those were my first jobs. Wow. Like my first paying jobs. And then um, I graduated with a degree in dance with a minor in writing, and my father bribed me to go to law school. And he offered me an apartment in Manhattan if I got into law school, and I was shallow enough to take that deal. <laughs> so. I mean, probably would. <laughs> I've lived in Manhattan, and I would have taken yeah. the and, same And, you know, my parents were, I grew up in the city, and I lived there, but I couldn't afford to move out of my parents. And, you know, I was 20 and just thought, well, this is just terrible. Um, so I went to law school, which was also in some ways just terrible. Um, but, um, but you know, sort of trained the left half of my brain in a way that I still use. Um, so from being a lawyer, I went to work at, uh, getting a law degree, I went to work at the Schubert Organization and Broadway, where I had a, a hybrid career doing legitimate theater, like reading scripts and attending workshops in that sense, and also sitting on collective bargaining negotiations wow. and, and uh, other negotiations. So it's sort of a hybrid, interesting job. Um, from there, I went to Astoria Studios, which is a production facility in New York, which is where I actually got first bit by the film bug. And mm-hmm. even though I was like on the corporate side, I found myself walking onto sound stages and going, you're an AD? What does that mean? What's that thing called? You know, yeah. like, what are wow. you doing? And I really, that was, I had always been about live performance, and it wasn't really till I was working at Astoria that I began to get excited about film. Hmm. Um, and so from there, uh, I you know, within a couple of years of that, I produced my first movie, um, which, you know, this is pre-internet days, so I found the material, I went up to Columbia and down to NYU, and I posted on a notice board that I was looking for scripts, and a bunch of scripts came over the transom, and I found one of those, and I ended up making that movie called Jumping at the Boneyard and getting it into Sundance, so I got the big golden ticket, and that was my first movie. And how old are you? Um, I don't want to say because I oh, figure out how the how oh, okay. when the movie was released and when then everyone will know okay, my when age. Was the movie released? When, <laughs> when was it off? When was the project complete? Um, I guess it was made in 1989. Wow. And okay. so at that point, were you? No, that's that's too long ago. I'm bad at math. I'm a, I'm a, word, <laughs> I'm a word person. That's got to be wrong. But anyway, I'm a word person. We'll fact check it. Yeah. Well, Anyway, it just uh, just has had a renaissance, that movie, actually. Wow. It's been discovered, which is sort of cool. It stars Tim Roth and Sam Jackson and Jeffrey Wright, oh, wow. none of whom were famous at the time. That's Alexis so Arquette and uh, Denis Trevance, none wow. of them were known. And, wow. Yeah. So that was my first movie. And then um, within a couple, I was working at in New York, and I began to feel that my level of ambition that I had was not going to be met unless I came to California. I was at back and forth a lot. I felt like I always had a lot of momentum on meetings here when I was here, and then I would go back to New York and it would all fade away. And so without a job and, you know, with very little sense, I packed up my stuff and moved across the country and just said, I'm going to figure it out. So I was an admitted lawyer in New York, but I wasn't a lawyer here, but I worked as a paralegal when I first moved out. Um, on a Texaco oil case, which was like the most soul-crushing thing ever. Oh, God. Um, but I, I would work from 6 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon and then go try to hustle uh, movies Wow. Um, in the afternoon and evening. And I did that. I set up my first project. Um, and then... Um, and then I was had an offer to become Meg Ryan's partner, which I did for um, five plus years. 
um, during which time I made a bunch of movies, including The Wedding Planner, which mm-hmm. is everyone's favorite of my movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> everyone um, loves that movie. Everyone loves good. that movie. It's incredible. Um, in the way, the least uh, artistically ambitious of all my films and also the most popular, yeah. you know, go figure. But I made four <laughs> movies in five years there, and then I, I was so, sort of always writing on the side. Um, I went into... Um, I went into another job where I was the uh, president of production for a co-finance distribution company. First week on the job, I bought the house of Sand and Fog. Um, oh. I thought this was going to be the rest of my life. I owned a part of the company. I was there for six months, and the company uh, went under. And do mm. nothing I had done. My boss admitted that he hadn't raised enough funding. And um, so I was settled out, which, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood think it's going to be so great to get settled out of a deal. And it is great in that you get an enormous chunk of money because you get, you know, I had two years left on my deal and I got it in a lump sum. Um, But I also had lost my identity. I didn't know, you know, I had spent a lot of time promoting this company to the town and felt sort of embarrassed. Not that it was my shame, but sort of embarrassed that it had gone down. And I... You know, as so often happens, the personal collides with the professional, and I was suddenly home all the time, and I looked at my husband and realized I had to get out of that marriage, and I had two little kids, and um, so that's when I switched over to writing, because I didn't, as a producer, I was gone all the time, and um, I was really lucky, because I had um, forged a good reputation for myself, and so people would read my material, and then I also had talent, and so I began to get a lot of work. Um, so in the first year, the first 18 months, I guess, that I was working as a full-time writer, I had three projects, which was astonishing and great. Then the writer strike happened in 2008. Oh, wow. I had just given away a huge chunk of money of my money in my divorce. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't work for a year. Um, I had spent part of the last year adapting my, uh, my Horizontal Life by Chelsea Handler. Mm-hmm. Um, and that deal fell apart because of the strike. I was supposed to direct it. It fell apart. Um, and so suddenly I had two children that I was a sole support of. Um, no money in the bank, no jobs. I couldn't get hired as a producer because I'd switched over to writing, and the writing landscape had completely changed. There, you know, it used to be I was like a mid-level writer who got in a certain level of jobs, and now I was competing for A-list writers who were up for the mm-hmm. same things. Because I don't know that there was a really a watershed change in what happened after that last writer strike. Um, used to be that almost every deal guaranteed a writer two drafts and a set of revisions. That was standard. People began asking for one-step deals. So that meant that people were just doing work for free. used to be that they would do a list and meet people, and if they wanted a writer who cost half a million dollars, they'd find the money for it. All of a sudden, studios were saying, no, we'll pay 200000 for this script. And then so the $500,000 writers were all coming into need on those jobs, too. So it completely upended the way writers were employed. And this led to another innovation Mm -hmm. in that the producer of My Horizontal Life that I had brought on for the project was um, then the uh, chair of the USC Film School, and he invited me to come teach a class there. So I ended up staying at USC for 10 years (laughs) from one class. And um, I taught a lot of things there. I taught classes in creative collaboration and script development. I taught a producing practicum, which was an overview of everything from ideation through marketing and distribution. I oversaw probably close to 500 short films um, while I was there, and in the course of my time, my students' work won the Student Emmy, the Student Oscar, were um, uh, featured in the short corner at Cannes, won all kinds of awards, and so many of my students have gone on to just have, you know, killer careers. Wow. It's really, really exciting. And so that was, I call myself an accidental teacher because <laughs> I had no plans and I, you know, but I really found that I loved the engagement with the students. And um, now I teach all over the country. I teach at writing workshops, novel writing workshops and screenwriting conferences. And, and I also run this NYU LA program, which is um, for juniors and seniors at NYU. Um, our students come from all three of the portal campuses from Shanghai, Abu Dhabi and New York. Um, and it's an interdisciplinary program for students um, studying entertainment, media, tech. Um, so it's a really vibrant and exciting group of students and faculty, and kind of a you've seen you're here. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a they're here for space. like a semester. They come for a semester. It's like okay. a semester abroad. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Cool. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the thing I haven't talked Jaws about uh, uh, at all is my innovation into novel writing, right. which is probably my newest innovation. My newest innovation and probably the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. I'll just wow. be frank so about it because I ha I love books and I love reading and I always wanted to write a book. It was sort of on. I don't like really the word the term bucket list, but it was always something I thought about. Was oh, I'd really love Your to publish a book. List. Yeah, I wanted to do it. was something I wanted I like to do. That. And uh, yeah, I think I'm going to start an innovation. I, so, yeah. yeah. Um, We're going to make a template for yeah. it. <laughs> there you go. We can market it. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, Inspired by Nina's Different words, different words, and innovation. But I had a really bad TV pitching season, as every writer knows how that goes, where you're you know, dra drawn along and given false hope and disappointed and you do a ton of work that doesn't come into anything and I decided I was going to take Sundays to commit that I would write a book just because it was something I wanted to do and it was going to be for me and it was partly because I was losing my love of writing and I didn't want that to happen. It was partly because I was in a new marriage and there were a lot of stresses that I hadn't anticipated that largely came from blending a family um, and uh, you know I would just I just needed this something that was for me and but part of me also thought while I was writing well no one this may never see the light of day but if it does I own the IP mm -hmm. and that turned out to be prophetic so I it took me about a year and a half to finish that first book which is called Just Fall which is about a woman who on the night of her marriage learns that her husband is a contract killer and is told she has to kill someone if she wants to save his life, and it's her quandary, you know. Mm. She really loves him, but doesn't really know him, and what will, what, where will she compromise herself? So it's not about me or my marriage, but it's of course completely <laughs> about me and my marriage. Um, but I just was having all these big feelings, and so I blew them up to an operatic scale, thriller That's scale. That's right, though. We love that. Well, keep this. You know, the book opens with a man with a knife in his gut and my husband's very grateful I write because he thinks otherwise he will wake up with the knife in <laughs> you his get to gut. get it out of the page <laughs> it's, it's a release yeah. it's cathartic yeah. Yeah. so after I finished that book you know I gave it to a few friends I didn't tell anyone I was working on it because I didn't want people going how's that book and me yeah. going oh, yeah. it's, it was just for you too it was just for me and I like that you said if it never saw the light of day, that would have been okay because it was purely creative and yeah. just your own thing. Yeah, and it was really freeing for me. The book is a crazy structure. It's completely, it has alternating chapters entitled Now and Then, and the Now chapters are linear, and the Then chapters are all nonlinear. And wow. part of my experiment with structure was because writing TV and film is so highly codified in terms of structure that I was just like, screw this, I'm just gonna go crazy. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna yeah, play. Yeah, I'm gonna play. And then, so happy ending is that I gave it to a few friends when I was finished, and admittedly my friends were in the business, but um, within three weeks I had a really top New York literary agent and I sold it at auction to Random House. Um, so that book was published in 2016. I have a second book which was published in 2018 called The Burial Society. And then its sequel, uh, published January 28th of 2020, which is The Empty Bed. Um, yeah, just published. So exciting. Yeah. And Congratulations. even more excitingly, um, which was really thrilling for me, um, while I was launching NYULA, because I'm obviously a work craze maniac, I also wrote another book on spec outside of my burial society contract because I was seized by rage about how pathological liars were just sort of ruining, I thought, the discourse of our country. Yeah. And I wanted people to be held accountable for lies. And so I wrote in this mad fever. I'd never had an experience like this before. I felt like the book had embedded itself in my head like an arrow, and I pulled it out inch by inch into the computer. Wow. And so I wrote it in four and a half months in this mad fury, and my imprint at Random House Ballantine took it off the market with a preemptive offer. And it's going to be published this June. So in 2020, I will have two books. Um, ah, no big deal. Just published. halfway through the year. Crushing it. <laughs> <laughs> Innovator right here. And my Burial Society series is in development for television with ITV Studios. So I'm currently oh. working on the format for and that. it all comes back around. It all comes back wow. around. Wow. But it's, and, it's yeah. so cool that you you did take the time to do something for yourself and it came from such a pure mm -hmm. and like self-nurturing space that now that if it makes it back to the thing you originally started with, mm -hmm. that's all the better and it's on your terms and it has 
come from such a place as like self-care almost. Well, you know, right? it's interesting because um, I'm not great at self-care. I'm trying to be better. You know, like we all are. I think it's a struggle, right? And, and it's a constant, too. Constant there's no struggle. finish line. No, there's no finish line. And you have to sometimes recognize that you need more self-care than others, depending on what your, you know, stresses are or whatever. But um, when I sold my first script, you know, I had been other other people's producer at that point in my career for 15 years, and um, I had, had been known for um, finding new voices. I had made, you know, four movies with first-time feature directors. I had employed a lot of new writers, and so um, when I was interviewed by Variety after I sold my first script, I, I said quite sincerely, I felt like I spent all this time fostering other people's voices, and it was time for me to find mine. And I feel like every innovation that I've taken that's really advanced me since then has been about listening to that, my own voice, whether it was deciding to write a book or deciding to write a book out of contract because I mean, it was partly because I had something burning to say and it was also partly that the editor who had acquired me at Random House was pushed out when that company merged with Crown. And so suddenly the person who had brought me into the company, who had a vision for where my career was going to be, who had suggested that we turn the Burial Society into a series as opposed to a standalone, that person was no longer there. So I figured I need a piece of new material to reinvent myself. You know, I was allowed to interview ed ed editors. I'm working with that new editor now and convince me. But it was unknown territory for me. And I thought I, if I'm going to... If I'm gonna, again, if I'm going to meet the level of my own ambition, I can't just sit around and deliver on my contract. I have to do something that's going to shake up the way I'm looked at. And it was a calculated play, but it paid off because, as I said, now we're racing it into publication. Right. Wow, your ambition just like astounds me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh, the energy in the. You're just like, yeah, this is just what needs to be done. Like, I'd still be just like sitting in my room being like, what am I going to do? And you're just like this. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. The time management is always something for me personally. I think I've told you this before. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I just have all these things. And you, you told me once you were like, okay, what needs to be done today? And I was like, probably taxes. And you were like, good, get those done. Then what's next? What's next? And then I said I had to like get off book for something and you were like, and that's fun. That's a reward. So then reward yourself with that. So personally, like what does your time management look like? Do you have to break it down like that or is it just like a natural thing for you now? I think for me now it's pretty instinctual, although, you know, I have a lot of friends who just tease me all the time about it. Like they just, they, and, and my children tease me too because I'm very much about being on time, you know, about commitments to time. I always believe in being on time and not late for things. I'm usually early, I'm, you know, and I am incredibly disciplined about my time. And, and the only reason for that is because there's, I don't want to not do anything. I feel like life is really short. I'm really hungry to have as much of it as possible. I wanna to go to as many places, meet as many people, have as many experiences, create as much art. You know, I'm just hungry for everything. And so if I'm, you know, it's hard, it's hard for me to slow down. Yeah. You know, like over the break of the Christmas holidays, I actually slowed down a little and I was like, oh, this is dangerous. Hoping <laughs> <laughs> that break yeah. is... Uh... No, I, can't, I can't give in to this, but I ramped up pretty quickly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I, I work a lot and I'm very, like, I think that a lot of fellow writers ask me how I'm so prolific. And that is really, I think, comes down to discipline. If I've set aside two hours to write, whether it's six to eight, which I do a lot in the mornings before I come into NYU, you know, to my day job, or if it's like, like this weekend, we have a long weekend, I'm writing the whole weekend, except for like a Pilates class and <laughs> a haircut, you know? Right. I, I stick to that and I don't deviate from my commitment to what, myself. What, somebody calls you for lunch, let's grab lunch, you're like? I say I can't, I have a writing weekend. Wow. I just don't, because I, I, I respect it. I respect that if I am not honoring that commitment to myself, then I'm not going to create anything. And I, I have to be self-generative. For where I am in my career in particular, you know, I'm, I'm writing an original pilot as well, which is about the, um, I sort of pitched it as um, set in Humboldt, country, Humboldt County, the home of marijuana. Oh, and so I'm I, from Northern California, yeah. very familiar. Okay, so <laughs> I, I pitched it basically as Dallas, except with weed at its mercenary beating heart instead of oil. So it's about what's happening with the legalization of marijuana and, oh, and it's sort of a juicy family drama, mm -hmm. you know, like set in the, the world of weed. And it's everything that I like. It's 
it's um, moral ambiguity, it's like questions about what's legal and what isn't, what's moral and what isn't. It's, it's, it's a way to look at family dynamics, yeah. which I think is the heart of so much. We all carry so much of our childhood wounds and it affects everything we do as adults. And so I like getting into that with my writing. And you know, it deals with social issues, which is a big part of my writing as well. I, um, I'm a bit of an activist, and um, for a long time my work was focused primarily in the arena of gun control, because when I became a parent, my feelings really shifted on that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but since 2016, you know, I'm a, in, a fire, in a forest fire with a water pistol, so, you know, I've <laughs> tried to put my energy into a lot of issues, you know, whether it's immigration or women's rights or whatever. Um, but I, I believe that art is one of the ways in which we can move that needle, right? I mean, I think it's sort of widely accepted now that if it hadn't been for will and grace, we wouldn't have gay marriage in America, right? I mean, there is a real impact that art can have. So in my Burial Society books, I have a protagonist who runs a private witness protection program, and she takes whistleblowers or abused women or kids being tortured in the foster system and sets them up with new identities and safety, right? So I like to say she's my badass avatar. I go to petition, I sign petitions, I go to marches, and she, you know, sticks people in the neck with fentanyl and, you know, takes care of business, right? So, um, you know, convince me is about the toxicity of lying, right? You know, um, while Dust Fall was more about the personal, about how women in particular tend to paper over the things that they don't line up with the vision they're building themselves of a man. Mm-hmm. In that book also, my protagonist heroine dismantled a child trafficking ring because human trafficking is a big problem and something I wanted to shine a light on. So I write thrillers, so my, my, my approach is always, how can I give people a really cool e-ticket ride? I, you know, do you guys know what an e-ticket ride is? It's a, it used to be at the ride. Someone reminded me this. If like an express? Yeah, well, it used to be you got an e-ticket at Disneyland, and it was like oh, a yeah. fast, oh, like fast, 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 fast to fast all drive, the, fast, right? Fast, fast, fast. Yeah, right. yeah. That's so what I, I, I meant. Yeah, right. So I like to think of my books like that. They're a big, fast ride. You know, I, I write them. They're set in international locations. You know, they've been set in Paris and St. Lucia. You know, um, Hong Kong, right? The, they, they're designed. And they to, go back and forth. They go yeah. back and forth. They're designed to be fast-paced and really fun. But if someone comes away afterwards thinking about, you know, the cost of mental illness of, on a family, which I've dealt with, or or self-harming, which I've dealt with, or um, human trafficking, or d- domestic violence, if if someone comes away from the books asking a couple of questions or thinking about that in a different way, then I really feel like that's an important thing to try to do. Yeah. That awareness, mm-hmm. just getting that awareness yeah. to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I sure. think what you said about embedding like social issues or commentary, like another I word, intersection, the intersection of where art and life meets is, has always fascinated me mm-hmm. as someone in the artistic world. Um, have you always wanted to kind of put those messages in consciously or do they sometimes just come out in what you're writing or is it a little bit of both? I think a little bit of both. I, you know, I think one of the funny things about being a writer is sometimes you don't realize what thing inside you or you are working out. Like you're drawn to an idea or a piece of material and you're not really sure what even, and then you're, you're done with a thing and then you go, oh, that's what that's I was why. thinking. That's <laughs> why. Oh, now I see. Right. And sometimes it's more conscious. Like I'm writing a new book now because my publisher has said they want one big summer book for me a year, which is, you know, no pressure. Um, <laughs> so um, I started working on the next one, and um, I, I don't have that much done, but I do know what arena it, it's set in. Um, the working title, which I like actually, is Casual Violence. Um, mm-hmm. And the book starts with the woman walking through a parking lot with her keys through her fingers like we're, a yeah. we're just brass knuckle. Yeah, yeah we literally like just a keychain that. that had like two holes in it and like it was like a dog's head, and you put your fingers through the, the ears. The, though, are like big 
pointy yeah. things yeah. and you hold the ties. And right, I want that, right? Yeah. I, there's not a woman I know no. who doesn't need that, who hasn't walked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right, hasn't walked through Clenched that. the keys, just hold them. Into, yeah, right. absolutely. Right. Or like, you know, wanted to take the stairs for the exercise but was afraid of being in a yeah. stairwell, right? I mean, absolutely. we have to Even elevators. I'm Even. like, the wrong person walks out. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Space. yeah. So that was sort of that sort of fence sense of pervasive fear um, was sort of the starting point for that book. And, um, and then I wanted to look at the cost of um, trauma in a way, not in the same story, but in the way um, Unbelievable did. I don't know if you guys saw that on Netflix, but yeah. it's quite brilliant. It's yeah. Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette and mm -hmm. um, uh, Caitlin Deaver. And I thought that was a fantastic um, examination, uh, you know, of why women aren't believed and why they live in a state of perpetual fear. And yeah. uh, that's something I just, I felt, you know, usually when I want to write about something, it comes from me being angry about something. Strong feeling, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and finding it, needing to find a way to work that out mm -hmm. on the page. And, and you know, I, I think also it's angry and it's not just angry, it's helpless, right? Because there's only so much, I, I believe I, I'm doing what I can. I'm, you know, pretty active politically. I. I'm a teacher, which means I'm spending, putting a lot of positive in the world. I'm trying to make an impact with my books. But I, no matter what I do, I recognize I'm one individual whose you know, message has a limited reach, you know, even though it, it seems to be growing. It's growing. It's, it's growing. spreading. It's growing. But, you know, so, you know, writing, being able to control what happens on the world of the page, if I can't control what happens in the actual world, also gives me a sense of control which keeps me from just like crawling into bed and eating chocolate in despair. Right, yeah, <laughs> you can control. We've, Ashley and I have talked about this a lot because, you know, everyone goes through their ups and downs and time, trying times, but you can only really control what you can't control, yeah. right? It's like a yeah. simple phrase, but like you don't know how something might be received or I'm a writer as well, how my writing is received or your acting or whatnot, yeah. but it's yeah. showing up and doing it. Showing up. And putting your right. heart into it is, Right, and that's brave. You know, it's I think hard, people yeah. underestimate the bravery it takes to go to an audition or to sit at the page and say, I'm going to put something that I care about or I'm going to put myself on the line here. And, you know, it, it, you risk rejection. You risk being understood. I mean, I, I understand the concept of the death of the author that, you know, once my book is in the world or my my show, whatever it is in the world, people are going to have their own interpretations. I'm, I'm done, right? I get that. And I think that part of craft is learning how to control that so they do get what you want and not something else out of it. Um, that's, a, you know, one of the trickier things that you have to learn in craft. But I think that the, you know, just showing up is like this. When I teach writing classes, that's the first thing I say is make a commitment to yourself mm -hmm. about the fact that you're going to actually do this and, and honor that. Mm -hmm. Because it's... Another I learned. <laughs> Integrity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I always say showing up's the hard part. Um, where is the industry at today, and where do you see it going? Oh well, it's a little chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the a word. Little sometimes. Yeah. Is an understatement. I think that, like, what impacts me directly is obviously the. Writers Guild ATA action. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So if your listeners don't know, um, the Writers Guild to protest unfair packaging fees being extracted by the agents, and they are unfair in my opinion. Um, uh, they asked us to fire all of our agents. Which this was earlier, this was in 2019, correct? Yes, this was... I remember. Maybe yeah. eight or nine months ago, but it's yeah. unresolved. It was about a year ago, yeah. yeah. It, it's unresolved, and so... I and many of my colleagues no longer have agents. Now, I have a manager who I think is fantastic, but he's very beleaguered because none of his clients have agents now. So he's doing, you know, many, wearing many hats. Right. And so it's been a challenging time. It's been a challenging time for the agencies, I think, um, because they can't represent writers. Um, there, some writers did stay with their agents. Um, but I think I agree with the principles behind it. Um, I, I understand you know, a packaging fee, which is a percentage of the budget, makes sense to me in the feature world if you put together an independent one-time feature. And in return for that, you take a service fee. That totally makes sense to me. The problem with TV is that 3% fee is put on every single budget, which gives the agency an inherent interest in protecting the show and not any particular client. 
because mm -hmm. if we figure every show approximately $4 million, if they're getting 3% of that $4 million every time a show is made, it's less important to them if their client is still the showrunner or is still staffing or is still on that show. Mm -hmm. um, and it's successive. You know, they made a couple of phone calls, right? And it takes money out of the production of the shows, right? So that means that either, you know, there's one less writer on staff or less money for locations or less money for cast, right? So it actually, you know, I think it's unfair in the way it's conceived and it's also hurting the quality of the, of the material. Um, so I agree with this, but it's it's definitely thrown a big it's wrench. It's a new world. It's a new world. I, and I think, you know, agents, and this is where, I, and the other disruptor besides this action, but the other disruptor that we've all been experiencing for the last few years is just technology. Right. Um, and, and the way it affects the agents is that agents used to be information brokers, right? Now information can be uploaded by anyone and accessed. You know, like the Guild has done a lot of things to create like a bank of scripts available for producers, a place where producers can list open assignments and have people submit. And you know, and the truth is, is that in TV, writers hire other writers, the showrunners hire other writers. So in TV, that's all, that's always, that's continued the way it has, more or less. They've had, uh, friends of mine who are showrunners have told me they've had to bring on people to read submissions and do some weeding instead of having the agents do it, but it didn't really affect their ability to staff. Mm -hmm. So that, and, and you know, also what's happened with the streamers, how they've disrupted what's considered as traditional viewing patterns, you know, how we're, our consumption is changing, watching things on our phones or our iPads, you know. Um, so technology is the other big unknown. How right. it's going to keep changing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. You've worked with, um, in a lot of different creative mediums, and um, how has that unfolded in your life? And do you have a favorite? And, and are you going to reinvent yourself, reinvent yourself again? <laughs> sure, why not? I mean, I, you know. What else haven't you touched on? <laughs> um, you know, my rap career. Oh! Um, imminent, <laughs> imminent rap career. <laughs> no, I, I cannot sing and I cannot rap, so neither one of those. But, um, well... You know, I love making film content because of the collaborative nature of it. There's yeah. something wonderful about bringing together, you know, in some cases, several hundred people in yeah. a common goal. There, I, you know, that's been a brilliant thing. I love that. Um, and I love writing books for the very opposite reason, is that it's so singular and solitary. Mm -hmm. um, and here's a beauty thing. If, you know, you're writing a book, and I don't say that this is easy, but if you sell a book, you need one editor to say yes and one publisher to say how much, and you have a book, right? There's nothing, after, you know, you sell a book, and you have to really screw up for it to not get published, you know? You have to not deliver a final manuscript, you know? If you deliver a book, it's going to get published. Most screenplays aren't made, so there is, you know, there, for me, the satisfaction that I get from knowing that a book will exist as a thing, as an entity in the world when it is created, you know, I can write a hundred screenplays, they may, they're roadmap to something that may never get made, right? So, um, I, well, I love the collaborative part of actually making stuff and bringing all those people together and getting input that changes the idea from the different perspectives of the departments and the actors and all of that. You know, that is a rarity in the world because most stuff doesn't get made. So, you know, I really, and then now that my books are all getting optioned back for film content, it's sort of a nice, uh, it is that full yeah, circle. Yeah, yeah, nice that. circle. So amazing. <laughs> That's so fun. Love it. Um, and do you want to, yeah, so we like to ask all of our guests a couple of questions. Okay. Questions. Uh, so what's your favorite type of tea to drink? Um, peppermint. Ooh. Yeah. Refreshing. Morning, refreshing. noon, night, all the time. Um, well, I'm honestly, I don't know if this is going to get me kicked off the podcast, oh. but I'm say it. Whatever you're not much say, of a tea it. drinker. I'm a very occasional <laughs> oh, tea drinker. Oh, that's it. No more. <laughs> I don't like iced tea, and no, I rarely okay. drink hot oh, tea. I'm, I'm honestly, spoiler, more of a coffee person, but I think there's a time and place <laughs> for tea. <laughs> like, I drink coffee till 2 p.m., and then I'll There's a time and a place for tea. <laughs> tea. Uh, what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, hmm. Well, my guilty pleasure. I have to keep this safe for work. Um, <laughs> 
I'd say, um, well, now I'd say my guilty pleasure is getting to exercise because mm-hmm. I, I'm doing so many things that I have to really make an effort to figure out. It's really important to me as a former dancer to stay in my body. Um, yeah. And I will say that uh, that's the one thing that goes when I'm this busy. So right now, I know that doesn't sound like a guilty pleasure no, to other people. Good. They're thinking a bubble bath, that's... a chocolate bar. And I'm thinking, no, no I, mean, I just want to go move my body. That's what I mean. <laughs> that's self-care you. and like, yeah, and yeah. you feel guilty taking away from your work. And Correct. you have people who are like, turn in that manuscript. We need to see that pilot. We need, yeah, you've yeah. got all these other people that are asking these things of you. That and you're like, correct. can I go out for an hour and work out? Yeah, that's... Yeah. And then get my nails done and hair did too. <laughs> maybe a massage. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. 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 A little Depend, self-care. Depending yeah. on how many deadlines are going at once. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> huh. And you want to ask the last yeah. question? Yeah. What is the one thing you'd like to gain clarity on in your life? Oh, uh, well, it's sort of a more of a global question, I guess. But it's something that I actually try to research sort of explore in my work too, not research, but explore, is like why we connect and why we don't, right? Like, I feel like as a human being, as also as an artist, that's what I'm interested in. Like, I believe, I like to believe that we are more alike than we are different, right? I like to believe that that, if you get past the ways in which we might be dissimilar, you can find a connection with almost anybody. And I've had some experiences of late where, you know, I've gotten to connect with a Trump supporter, which I am not, or, you know, where I've really sort of thought, okay, that's possible, right? That, that is possible. But I think that figuring out, it's, you just watch it all the time, how people misunderstand each other, blunder things, do something that's well-intentioned, that's ill-received, make a mistake, can't control their emotions. And I just wish I had clarity on why we're all so, I don't know, rough around the edges and so hard to just figure out how to get along in a peaceful way. Yeah. I think we all could use that. Like you said, it's a global thing. It's a global thing, yeah. Yeah. And I think about that a lot because, you know, I I, I think right now, I said this before, but I think that, not today, but that I think we're, it's not PTSD that's expressing, affecting the company. It's present traumatic stress syndrome. Mm -hmm. I feel like the events of the last few years have made everyone in the, fraught place. Suicide rates are up, you know, drug overdoses are up. I think people are, you know, responding to the general turbulence in the, sort of in the world and in this country. And I think that, but I think, and I really believe this, that most people really want the same things, which is health, safety, love, affection, connection, you know, a sense of community. I think that's what we're all looking for. It's so funny. It's kind of back to the kindergarten thing, right? Like, treat everyone you want to be treated but I think you're right like everyone is more like than they are different if we could just take a minute yeah from all the chaos to to say that yeah yeah that at that needing to connect and then you said like that collaborative process of like being like in a team of like making a movie or making a film or something like I find myself more and more like wanting more of that collaborative collaborative thing and that community and I say that I find myself saying that a lot recently it's like I want what a community I want people and then like I joined these groups and it's like we met actually at a like urban retreat and it was like no phones you're getting to know the person next Mm -hmm, to you today mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was amazing here we are a year later like it's pretty amazing and I'm just like if what if we did that out in the world I think it's really important and I think that you know I think people are afraid to connect too because they're afraid they'll be rejected or you know wounded in some way yeah yeah so I like this is if I if there's something I, I would like clarity on, and if there's something that I think the world needs clarity on, is just how to be more kind to each other, mm-hmm. right? And just, uh, like, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny because before I met my current husband, I put together a list of, like, my ideal qualities in a man. It was just yeah. putting it out to the universe, I might right? have been <laughs> yeah. like, I had, like, 25 things yeah. that I was looking for. But I, Requirements. I, yes. That, yeah, but yeah. I refined my list several times, and I realized that as I refined it, that kindness kept going to the top. Like yeah. a, like that, you know, mm-hmm. for me, it had always been intellect, because that's one thing I'm snobby about. Is like, but, <laughs> Same, guilty. Yeah, yeah, it's like, if you're going to be snobby about something, right, you know, it's better than another, being snobby about your shoes, right? Another I word. 
eight. So that's it. And 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 but I realized that like it was that even that was second to kindness because a kind attitude, right? A, a, a approaching the world with the sense of how can I be kind? How can I contribute? How can I greet every person with kindness? I mean, I think we just in that should be the innovation that we're all trying to do yeah. now. That would be the thing that uh, I think could innovate kindness. Innovate kindness. That's my a new hashtag. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, do you have any last words on how people can connect with you through social media or anything Follow you want to mention? Follow your amazing book. Yeah. So um, uh, please go out and buy my books. <laughs> Read them. And if you <laughs> and if good. and if you like them, post on Amazon and Goodreads and social media. It's really important for authors. Um, also, I have a monthly newsletter called um, Dispatches from the Cheerfully Dark Mind of Nina Sadowski. Um, and name. you can, if you go to my website, if you Google me and go to my website, you can sign up for that um, newsletter. Um, every month it includes um, sort of a work update, recommended viewing, um, a column called Rip from the Headlines, which is my weird take on the world, mm -hmm. and also a segment called Hollywood Decoded, where I encourage readers to write in and ask questions about Hollywood, and then I answer them based on my 20 plus years of experience. Amazing. You are um, such a giver. Well, you know, I what I found is that um, I mean, it, it's I, I started the newsletter um, because another author said to me that she thought I said, "What? Well, so many authors do this letter. What am I going to offer?" And she said, "I think this Hollywood insight is something that would be interested of interest to other authors as well as the general public, and that's what you have that's special." So that was sort of the reason I I started doing it and. Um, you know, but it also gives me an opportunity because whoever asks the question, I also then promote what they're doing. So mm -hmm. if it's another author, I'll do a link out it's to their new book release. It's community. Yeah. You know, they talk a lot about literary citizenship in the book world, which is not something you hear a lot in film, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea of helping each other. Here in L.A., writers are pitted to be in competition with each other. Um, but the thing about book buyers is because they bought your book doesn't mean they're not going to buy my book. They can't buy enough books, right. people who really buy books. Yeah, so people, most books. people don't read any books at all. But the people who read books read so many are books. mad for books. So mm -hmm. there, you know, there's this whole concept of literary citizenship where we promote each other. We provide blurbs. We link out on release dates. We offer congratulations. We promote each other on social media. Yeah. And I, I love being a part of that. And so Hollywood Decoded began as a... Yeah, like how can you bring support. that into the Hollywood world? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Possible. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah. You know, I, I believe that you know that, that it's again because it's all. What is it really? It's just kindness. kindness. It's saying there's yeah. enough yeah. for everybody, Absolutely. and we should support each there's other. There's a piece of pie for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone else. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks. Just like there, we can every podcast for everybody. There's a podcast for everybody. There's a book for everybody. There's a movie for everybody. There's a job for everybody. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Any final thoughts? From anybody? No? Oh, Nina, it has been a real treat. Well, thank you for having thank me. You. It's really oh been gosh. fun talking with you guys. Thank you so and, much. Um, oh, thanks for inviting us to your office. We're looking gorgeous. over uh, the, the Farmer's Market, the Grove. World famous LA Farmer's we Market. Can you can Hollywood see CBS, sign. the Hollywood sign, the Griffith Park yeah. Observatory. Oh, yes. Wow. Quite a view. Yeah. If you've yeah. never been to LA, come visit. <laughs> right here. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Yes, yes, yes. As you can see, Nina is super inspiring. Even though that episode was recorded in probably 2019. It was still super relevant to pivot and get that innovation list. Innovate, create, be, be the master, stay hungry, go after what you want um, and enjoy it. Have fun with it and be disciplined in your action. Give yourself two hours on a Sunday every day or every day, one hour or a couple pages, or, you know, give yourself a little marker. Because then when you give yourself a little marker, you can also give yourself that praise. Ah, oh, I gave myself those two hours today. That integrity. Oh, I followed through with what I said I was going to do with myself. Right? What a bond that is. That's the bond. 
I stayed true to me today. I showed up for me today. That is my takeaway. That's my steep for sure. Mm. So Nina has come out with another book, Convince Me, since we recorded this podcast. Amazing. Her thrillers are have you on the edge of your seat. They are they have you thinking, they, your mind, your body, all your senses get activated with her writing. It's really, really beautiful. And the you can get on a list, yes, 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 for the pre-order of the new book Privacy, the new novel, Nina Sadowski. Check her out, ninasadowski.com. That's N-I-N-A-S-A-D-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And she's also on social media, on Instagram, at Nina Sadowski. And yes, beauties, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. We are innovating the Clarity podcast, so stay tuned. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe a name change, maybe a logo change, maybe a new a host, a co-host, right? Something fun, but new guests. And of course, I think it's just going to be a, a flow of things. What really propelled me to start recording again today and release this episode was that my I record these voice memos when I'm in a, a flow state and I'm learning things from them. And so I can only hope that sharing them will give you some insight or something to think about, something to stay, just to open your awareness a little more, right? To open your mind a little more, to, to see another possibility, to choose which direction you want to take, how you want to respond, right? So yes, yes, yes. Stay tuned. There'll be more. Check out Nina. Love her so much. I will see you, hear you, listen to you all very, very soon.